YouTube and as a podcast over all of the major channels. And each week I get to sit with an inspiring person and listen to them tell their story and share it with all of you. This week is no different. I'm joined by Kiko Matthews. Welcome, Kiko. Uh, Kiko is an incredibly impressive woman. Um, I'm going to give the customary introduction. And uh, honestly, it's going to be difficult to know where to start here. So Kiko is the founder of uh, Kick Plastic, uh, which we'll come on to. Also a world record ocean rower. We'll talk about that. A speaker and environmentalist. Grew up in Herefordshire. Uh, spent some time uh, with uh, a charity called the Colin uh, Javens Spinal Injury Trust, uh, which included uh, a long drive from mm -hmm. London to Cape, Cape Town. Yeah. Uh, very interesting, but raised half a million, more than half a million yeah. pounds, I think. Uh, was a teacher on and off um, for many years, taught science, uh, and uh, that period was peppered with, uh, with the uh, diagnosis of... Um, Cushing's disease, yeah. which we'll talk about and explain what that is yeah, for no people who don't know heard of it. Uh, and, uh, and that really sort of uh, served as the, the trigger point and a pivot point in Kiko's life, whereupon she took, took on the world like, uh, by, the, by the looks of things, uh, founding um, stand-up paddleboards uh, Sup Kiko. Uh, uh, she then did the uh, ocean, uh, ocean Power, was that what it was called, Ocean Power? Oh, what, the crossing? Yeah, did you have a name for it? No, what was it? No, it didn't have transatlantic solo, I think it was. Transatlantic solo, okay, so the ocean, the ocean row, uh, and incredible, and, uh, and, and broke the world record uh, by some distance, and is doing so many amazing things since then, an ultra marathon in Jordan, uh, paddleboard around Ibiza, uh, a recent uh, sail uh, uh, between, uh, I think it was the Netherlands and... Uh, Netherlands and the Netherlands, by North Denmark. Amazing uh, kit plastic, which is about cleaning up the uh, the beaches and the oceans of, of plastic and generally eliminating uh, that sort of waste, and many others that I could continue to go on about, but I won't. <laughs> probably lost everyone by now. I know, I know. You're still there. Everyone's still there. Uh, so what an impressive, uh, what an impressive track track record. Um, let's pick it up when you were teaching and. Yeah you found out you had Cushing's disease. Can you tell us about that and tell us about the disease? Yeah, so first of all, the, um, so I was teaching secondary science and I actually was in, I decided I wanted to move from Dorset to London. Um, and it's summer, summer term and life was amazing and I wasn't sleeping and I was just like totally high on life and just couldn't wait for all this new exciting stuff. And uh, my dad's a GP and during the summer holidays, I uh, went, home and I got these funny spots on my chest he said I need to go and see the doctor but I was like they're not killing me just you know they'll disappear these funny spots um, and then a couple of weeks later I've been drinking water like regularly I had a bottle because I had this funny taste in my mouth and anyway went to, mum said dad said you need to now you need to go to the doctor yeah. mum said tell him you're a bit hairy and a bit podgy it was like poking my tummy I was like thanks mum nothing like your mother to tell the truth right <laughs> um, so I went to the doctor and reeled off this whole list of things. I hadn't really been sleeping properly. My legs were feeling a bit weird. I definitely got this like overhang belly and these really skinny legs. I like weirdly skinny and weirdly podgy relative. Uh, and so I was telling him all these things and he was very interested by the spots. And then as I was leaving, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, the reason I've come is because I've got a funny taste in my mouth. Anyway, it turned out I had thrush. 
Um, he said, you've either got diabetes or HIV, and I was like, great. Um, there was no other option. Uh, luckily, I had diabetes, because uh, obviously, well, I mean, I don't know, it is curable in my case, but it's... Not many people would describe diabetes as lucky. I mean, it's better than HIV, I think. Yes. I don't know. Um, but actually, I don't know, in this day and age, maybe HIV's better. That's not the point, but anyway, it turned out that Mum got on the internet, it's like, why she got diabetes? And then she was like, oh, I think you've got Cushing's, because you've definitely got, you're definitely a bit weird. So psychosis and mania is one of the things. Insomnia, bruising, um, diabetes, I can't remember what the other things were that she kind of identified. Dad was like, don't be so ridiculous, it's so rare. The doctor's daughter <laughs> wouldn't have it. I'm like, yeah, I've got, I've self-proclaimed or diagnosed third child attention seeking syndrome, which is like middle child syndrome. Right. And I was like, if I'm going to get ill, I'm not just going to have flu. I'm going to make sure it's big, like big, yeah. bigger and better than the brothers and sisters. <laughs> and lo and behold, I had, um, yeah, so I had end stage diabetes. Um, mum phones up, well, dad phones up mum's ex-boyfriend, who's a top endocrinologist in King's College Hospital, went down there and I was admitted straight away. And um, I got kind of a very severe form of it where most people get really fat and podgy before it even gets diagnosed, they keep going back to doctors, no one knows what it is, because it's one of those things you learn about in, um, like, every medical person I speak to goes, oh yeah, we heard about that at university, but I've never met anyone with it, so mm. it's one of those kinds of things. It's one of those doctor house ones. Yeah, and because yeah. there's so many symptoms, because it's a, it's a hormone-based um, illness, so you get, I had a pituitary tumour, which pumps out a hormone which then signals to your adrenal glands to secrete cortisol, which is your stress hormone. Uh, not because I'm stressed, but it's the tumour related, so the hormone obviously goes to every single cell in your body. So by the time I kind of got to hospital, I had osteoporosis, muscle wasting to the point I couldn't get up the stairs without using my arms to help me get up and out of the bath. I had insomnia, I had memory loss, I had psychosis mania, skin thinning, bruising, spotty, hairy, podgy, like big face, lump of fat on my kind of, they call it a buffalo hump. I had about three double chins as opposed to sort of one. Um, and generally, basically I was kind of- Quite unwell. It, very unwell, very quickly. Yeah. Although they think I'd had it for a long time, suddenly it was like, boom, it all came. It was yeah. like so obvious. Whereas most people kind of, little bit by little bit, right. they kind of, so it takes a long time, so they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and I've been exercising loads to try and keep my weight down, so I've kind of masked it a little bit. Um, ended up in intensive care, because my potassium levels dropped so low that if they dropped by 0.1 something more, then I would have been out and not re-jumpable. Um, what do you call that? Restartable. Yeah. Um, With the pedals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so th they pumped me full of potassium, stabilised me. A week later, they went up my nose, took out. It was only six millimeters. It's amazing that it's not cancerous. So it's got nothing to do with cancer. So it's benign. It's tumor. just a bright benign tumor that's pumping out. Right. Overly active. Um, and it's the hormones that kill you, not the kind of, it doesn't go anywhere. That it must tumor. have made you feel, I mean, do, do you remember the time? Did yeah, it yeah. Did you feel so like were stress hormones pumping everywhere? Um, yeah, so by the time I got to hospital, my head was like, and the bright lights and everything, it's too much, and you can't remember, so that becomes stressful because you're trying to remember what you haven't remembered, and then people come and visit you, and they're trying to have conversations with you, and so you're like, really struggling and conscious to try and be as normal as possible, when all yeah. you want to do is go like, like, loopy loop. You haven't slept for, a month or something, so you got that on top of it. Uh, but yeah, it was it wasn't very wasn't particularly nice. Um, and then when they took it out, took it out, like overnight, within three days, the diabetes had gone. 
had a bit of brain fluid dripping, which we had to kind of like make sure that that sealed because you obviously the person next to me in the bed had the same thing, and she actually died of meningitis. Oh, pretty much not in front of me, but they whisked her out. So it's like it has it's it's a life threatening illness. Um, Clearly. But, uh, but after three days, that yeah, uh, back to sleep because it's the hormones that cause all the symptoms. So as soon as right. you remove the issue, yeah. the only problem you do have is it's like being on drugs. So you, if you're a massive drug taker or a massive alcoholic, and then you suddenly stop either of those, your body goes it's like a massive craving. So it got so used to those so high, extreme high levels, yeah. you have to be very careful not to send it into like shock. Right. So you'll get put on hydrocortisone, and then your body's a bit like oh. So, so, just so, so hard work, but yeah. yeah. But I've gone from like 15, no, 3,000, it's meant to be 350 in the morning, your levels. Is a, that's a high level. Your cortisol. Yeah, cortisol. Mine were like 3,500 on one day, and wow. nighttime was 1,500. So cortisol rises, it wakes you up in the morning yeah. and then drops at nighttime. Yeah. And they were 1,500 at nighttime, which, bearing in mind your daytime, it's meant to be 250. Yeah, like by nighttime, I was like buzzing. So then you take that away. And your body has got used to higher levels, so it right. needs to have that just as a sustain, and so you have to yeah, gently, gently lower it back through down. medication. And that's for two years of that, two years of meds. Two years of meds. Yeah. And that obviously gave you a wake-up call. You were, well, you obviously were teaching when you were in the hospital, but at, at the prior to you were yeah. teaching, and, and uh, how did that change your mindset? Yeah, so to begin with, I was just like, great, going to this new school, it's all going to be cool. Um, it was pretty hard work because it was a new school and I was obviously in recovery, although mentally I'm like, I'm fine, I'm fine. In hindsight, I was very achy and everything was very hard work. Um, and I think after about 18, I think it was 18 months, I just kind of thought, like, what am I doing? I've got an extra, another chance to do what I want to do in life, to live my life. Certainly isn't, I'm certainly not living my life here at the school, doing it being a teacher. Right. So I just handed my notice in and left that the next summer. So I did, they, they left my job open to me, which was amazing. And then I sort of did 18, I think I was there for 18 months, and then went back to Africa, where I learned to stand up paddleboard. And Africa's a good place to do that? On the Nile, yeah. On the Nile? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So that was my first. But if you fall on the Nile, then you get sick. I fell in the Nile once and I was terribly sick. I think it might have been the use yeah, over. Maybe don't. Did you drink it? <laughs> yeah, I think I might. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I mean, there are things, but I never didn't get sick. There's Bill Hart's here and other things, but kind of, it's more. I got malaria, but not from the river. As I looked at when I came back to UK, I decided that I wanted to uh, live my life and give back. So I wanted to set up a paddleboard company, uh, charity, which I eventually managed to sort of write all those horrible forms and set up a charity, but didn't actually have any money. But my thoughts were I could make money through the charity to pay me and to do paddleboarding. And this was Sup Kiko? So Sup Kiko, the big stand was the charity. Yeah. Couldn't do anything because of the red tape and no money. So I thought, well, I just might as well just set up a company and do the same thing. Mm -hmm. But I can take money, not have the red tape. I can just do good stuff in my yeah. company. It doesn't mean I don't have to be. So it was for profit in the end. Yeah, so it was for profit, but I did something called Trash Retreats where we collected trash out the canals in Hackney, which is pretty cool. And then the, our, my partner, not my partner, partner, but uh, canoeing, kayaking, uh, they also had a cafe in Hackney. So we would bring my. So customers would bring a bucket of trash and we'd get a cake or coffee at the end of the day. But they probably had left over, but it kind of was just a nice little thing. We were cleaning up the canal for them and they also were part of it too, so that was cool. And then just a lot of it was just, 
I don't even know if you'd call it coaching, but I would just chat to people and just like, it was great, they come from this horrible day's work in the city. Yeah. They'd end up in Richmond, so I did Richmond and Hackney. And we go out, we go up to the pub in Twickenham, we come back down again, everyone's learned a new skill, they've all had a beer or whatever they have, and they've forgotten about their whole day. And then we chat to them, and it was just like a really yeah. nice well-being type of right. thing. And you were Cash. collecting single-use plastics out yeah, of yeah. the canals. Yeah, and exactly, yeah. And, and so cleaning up. So the community people loved us because we were doing good stuff um, for the community. Uh, the people who I was taking out tended to like me. Some of them did not know, but they fell in and <laughs> they hated it. But, I do that. but generally, it was a really positive two. Good vibe. Good vibe. I wasn't making loads of money, but I was making enough that I could kind of survive. Um, felt good because I had obviously set up a charity and a business kind of on my own, and I made sort of partners and you know just very, just life just was pretty good. And I thought myself that I felt like I'd done that challenge, so I like to set myself little or big challenges, whatever you want. Little challenges. <laughs> I don't think that's true. Yeah. Um, and I'd done that. So at university, I decided I was going to do better than my brother and sisters in my degree, Quite nice. which I did, yeah. yeah. And then... Do you think they might be watching? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen so much from me, I think they're bored. <laughs> um, and then the UK to Cape Town drive was a bit of a challenge uh, that I kind of wanted to do, and then setting up my business was another kind of thing. And once I'd done that, I was like, okay, what's next? And I just... You, you breezed very quickly through the UK to Cape Town drive. Yeah. That was that was back in the that was back in the two thousand and five. Okay. It was a challenge. It was a it was a challenge in itself because the guy who was driving was tetraplegic, so fully paralysed, pretty much apart from shoulder movements. So we had a Land Rover adapted for him, and my fiance was best mates with him, and so because he was going, I thought I should go. Um, and I obviously would like I, who wouldn't want to go to yeah. drive through Africa. Absolutely. Um, however, the <laughs> the fiance bit didn't last quite wasn't quite so successful, and in Ethiopia I cancelled that one. So it was, a, it was a super challenge, it was not only a challenge but in itself. But completed the trip. But I still completed the trip. Amazing. With him and me in the same Land Rover for four more, four more months. Interesting, a feat of strength in itself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, my, not, not my best days. No, no. I imagine. So you, you've had this diagnosis, you've got over it, you've completely pivoted your life, you've set up uh, Subkiko uh, and a, ch a, a charity. What led you from there into taking on the Atlantic? Well, so I had this idea I wanted to do a challenge. So, you know, someone said, "Oh, you should be doing some adventures um, because I think you'd be great." And I was like, "Okay." And I'd met these guys who ran an ocean rowing company. And it's kind of so I knew about ocean rowing. So it wasn't a completely random. Is that a thing? Did yeah, yeah, ocean rowing? yeah, yeah. There's a race and everything. Wow. Um, and but I hadn't thought about that. And then mum said to me one day, it was sort of a bit of a joke, but she was like, Prince Harry, I think he'd be such a good boy. I think there was a programme on him or something, and she was like, he'd be such a good boyfriend. And I was like, yeah, I guess he would, but how on earth do I get his attention? I know what, I'll solo row across the Atlantic and I'll go for world records, because of my thoughts. And if I raise money for help and heroes, then, you know, he'd want to okay. meet me. Then about six months into my kind of campaign, <laughs> I thought, oh, this is not really, like, I was trying to sell my story to, not that particular story, but I was trying to sell the, the rowing story to sponsors to yeah. slap their, thingy, their logo on my boat and be part of it. I'd never rowed before, I'd never been to sea, and like, you know, help heroes, what was that about? And I actually realised that what this was all about was me setting challenges, especially because I nearly died and I'd been in a position where I couldn't get up the stairs properly, 
and I was now going to put my body and my brain through this like very stressful situation um, and hopefully show people that you can overcome like adversity but also show women and girls that it's not like a boys world and girls world it's like we can all do everything it's about empowering women and I changed my charity to King's College Hospital to say thank you to them for giving right. me that second chance which is very ironic because <laughs> a month later I'm back at King's um, having a discussion about another pituitary tumour that the same thing has come back Cushing's had come back. Cushing's has returned eight years later, and I am convinced. And you're training at the time. Yeah, yeah, full in, full in training, and I'm super strong. Like my testosterone levels are really high. I'm like stacked. I'm pulling not world record times, but not. I came eighth in the world for women uh, for the marathon, ocean, marathon berg rowing. Right. Um, and I was like, I'm pretty good at this. <laughs> and little did I know, it's actually because my body is like. Could you feel that? Oh, right. Okay. Not until I realised. And as soon as I realised I had my blood test, I was like, okay, now I can see um, that things are a bit weird. And the mania, I think, was making me think that rowing an ocean would be perfectly right. doable. Like, why not? Five other women have done it. But I was so far into my training and in my fundraising and my story and everything that I was just like, okay, well, this is a great opportunity to show people that even when you're in the middle of something and you know you get setbacks you can still carry on so I so you've got a another tumor yeah and brewing brewing I think it was probably more a bit stronger than the one before because it was only four millimeters and I could tell like definitely tell that the stuff was going on so it was more aggressive this one so clearly but, but earlier yes yeah, so I had another operation this time I was in hospital for three days not a month um, and Ten days later, I was back on my bike. I did a hundred, I think it was a hundred kilometer bike ride. I can't remember, but a reasonable size, a gentle bike ride. Like it was up the Thames Park. It wasn't sort of. You, know, you are making me feel so. No, lazy, as, like, you know? as in like I wasn't sort of you know like I was sort of stop and take, it was just like a mm. I was moving forward kind of okay. bike ride rather than a let's power it bike ride. But if you go out on your bike for a whole day, then like you can clock up. Yeah. A hundred k quite. Typically. I wouldn't know. Um, believe me. And then, and, and that was it. On the 1st of February, 2nd of February, I'd raised the money and I had done enough training. I mean, so much about the row is not the physical, it's a lot about the mental. So, off I set. In February? Yeah, because it's from Brampton area to Barbados. So okay, so it wasn't too cold. It's a trade winds. I mean, it's not like here, it's 20 degrees or something. Yeah. And then you yeah. catch up with the weather as you go down and it ends up really hot. So it's a bit chilly at night time in the Grand Canaria yeah. bit and then as you go further south and further west it gets warmer. Amazing. I I only rode out I rode out for about an hour and a half and <laughs> realised I had to go back because I left my medication in the fridge. Oh no. Yeah. So I had to go back and get my meds that I left in the apartment. So the the, the clock I assume started again. Yeah we started off. again yeah. So paint the picture. What what what, what was your boat like and uh, uh tiny foot like a, it's like a little pod so you have the kind of Door and you get into it and everything's in there. So everything you need to sustain yourself is in that boat because no one's in clothes or you. Uh, yeah, an enclosed outside, enclosed bed outside of rowing. Um, you've got your water main bed, you've got solar panels, you've got navigation, you've got autopilot that rudders you, which I actually didn't use, so I hand steered the whole way. Um, but uh, yeah, you've got your food. So I took 50, the record was fifty six days. So I took fifty days of food um, that just to you know give me a good kick up the ass. But I actually think I took more calories than I needed because I came back with 27 
days of food, so something went wrong. What? I know. I didn't really eat for about two and a half weeks because I felt a little bit nauseous. And when you do, when I do kind of intense exercise, it, like I don't, it's because you're sitting on your stomach, but you just lose your appetite right. and you're tired and all you want to do is sleep. You can't be bothered to eat. So what was the routine each day? You were rowing for mm, how long? It wasn't, wasn't a very good routine, but oh. I made sure I did about 12 hours of rowing in a 24 hour period. And it changed when the weather was big and hairy and scary at night time. I would stay in my cabin because it wasn't so nice being out in the cold and wet and no. massive great big waves. And then when it was super flat and calm, it was so hot because there was no wind that I would row at night time. It's also beautiful at night time. So yeah. um, I tried to, I did, unlike most ocean rowers, I made sure I had a long, a longer period of sleep because most ocean rowers do two hours on, two hours off, two hours on, two hours off. Yeah. But I kind of figured that there wasn't a lot, enough time in that two hours off for your body and your mind to ever really repair or relax. Oh, really? So I made, sort of had between four to some, there was a couple of days where I hit rock bottom physically and I think that was my medication issues because yeah. um, I obviously just had surgery six months ago. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I had about 12 hours sleep for two or three days yeah. just because I was like, I, there was no point killing myself in doing it. No. Um, Did you have a support group? On no, no, following no, 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 nothing, no, no. So if something went wrong... There were people closer to me in space at some point. Yeah, from there to there, but from so the space station. If you capsized, well, I, don't, I don't know how these things work, but yeah, if you got into trouble in some way... Yeah, there's a button to press if it all, like, if you need to go home, you can press the button and hopefully... Somebody be there in two days. Yeah, so within, so farmers get the message and they will radio you if they can. If they can't radio, radio you, they'll just send the nearest ship to look for you or whatever. Um, and then you, have, if it's a big, you know, shipping container, you have to climb this massive ladder to get to the top or it's a little yacht with two hot guys on it and you get rescued by two hot guys you know you don't really you can't choose but they can't choose either it's the closest boat to the yeah. it's called an epa so the emergency right. button that's going off it's kind of redirected to go and, and you must have had some amazing experiences did you have some tell us about uh, you know the scariest time and tell us about the most uh, incredible experience you had uh scary yeah i mean there was some there were definitely some times where there was a big, it must have been about 50 foot, this big black wall of water coming towards me. Big wave. Big wave. Big wave. So the waves come, you're, if I'm rowing to Barbados that way, the waves are coming towards me as well. So you can see the yeah. waves coming, but they're not like, I think my mum thinks they're like big crashing waves, like on the beach, but it's just huge swells. So you're rowing into them or away from no, them? No, away from them. All right, so, so you the can wind, surf The wind and the, yeah, so you yeah. can surf. I woke up one night in the middle of the night going 14 knots down the wave when you could, I could hear the either side of me as I like careered down this, down this wave that way. Um, so yeah, this big wall of water coming towards you and you just like, I knew that, that there's a, you know, there's a chance that you die doing these things, but I was like, I'm living, I wanted to live my life and living my life was not having a nine to five job or a teaching job. My living my life was putting myself through to see what my body was capable of and see what my mind was capable of. It's like putting it to the extreme and showing people that you, like, it is totally a mental, like, barrier that we tell, tell ourselves we can't do things. And everyone goes, oh, I can't believe you did that. And I'm like, my mum, the conversation I have with my mum, it's like, but you don't just drop you in an ocean and go, off you go. You know, you learn and you practice. Yeah. When you first started, I just came out of the harbour 
and then I went back in to start but like right. in Essex and then you go a bit further the next time yeah. and you go a bit further and then one day I had to row for 19 hours because I lost my anchor that's another whole story but you kind of learn as you go and then when you leave Grand Canary it's not something like you've got a 50 foot wave those waves gradually were getting bigger because yeah. of the big winds and you kind of get used to it and yes those there were three of them were particularly massive. Did it tumble the boat or something? No, I was I was just kind of like held on and went, I, you, you're attached and the door was shut and I was like, there's nothing you can do about this. Wow. There's nothing you can do about it. So like, what's the point? And I did have a little praise God, even though I was just a bit like, sorry, I haven't been praying to you for 25 years or sorry, I haven't believed in you for 25 years or whatever it was. But if you are up there right now, it's a yeah. time that you can just, you know, need a bit of forgiveness. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and assist me. And you get to the top of that. Whew, that was cool and you're kind of like you've got the most incredible view of this like hairy stormy sea because you're at the top of it and then you're like oh there's a massive pit of foam down the bottom where you can just imagine someone else has been sort of you know munched alive and you've got to go back down again and you've got to go back up but there's you cannot there's nothing you can do so you just have to let go extraordinary oh you know, you, it's like, must be right. so yeah feeling of helplessness and what about the most extraordinary thing that um, someone asked me this question last night, I did a panel. Um, so I saw a white whale, which was pretty cool. There's not very many of them, yeah. it's like four or five in the world. Uh, I liked the fact that when I had to stand on my boat in the crowd, I'd say it was more of an everyday thing, and you'd just be like, I haven't seen anyone for 10 days, five days, whatever it was. And it's, like, it's just such a huge, like I, is a plug for Google, but you know, you look at your Google Maps and you go, Oh, it's not very far because you've got it completely zoomed in and it's not until you you're in it that you realize exactly how big it was so like yeah. in theory it's like yeah it's not very far yeah. it's a couple of inches on your screen yeah. <laughs> but it's absolutely vast um and just standing there and thinking or just discovering that the closest person to me is there and not over there somewhere yeah that was pretty cool and then there were just like when you hit the doldrums or i don't know when it, there's just absolutely no wind whatsoever yeah. and you're in the middle of this huge ocean and you can see your reflection like perfectly. It must be disorientating in a way. Yeah, it's really, it's like the most bizarre thing. Do you see sharks? And yeah, I saw a shark, loads of dolphins doing their little thing. You know, some dolphins would like come and play with me for like 30 minutes, which was pretty cool. Like a massive wow. pod of them all like in their three doing little dances and under the boat. And that. And the other thing which everyone always loves is you had to you had to get out of the boat to clean the bottom. Yeah. So um, and it's just so weird to think. Why is that? Far, oh, because it grows bits and it okay. slows down. All right. But there's five kilometres of not like of depth below you. Yeah. Which I always think is like five kilometres is a long way. That's a three mile run. It's the Mariana Trench, or is that the other ocean? I can't remember. Yeah, at some point. No, it is. There's a trench in the middle. Yeah. At some point, it goes even deeper than that, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's like a 30 minute, that's a long way down. Puts Imagine running for 30 minutes, if that's an average pace, isn't it? 30 minutes to reach down the bottom. To reach the bottom. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Well, it puts, um, you know, it puts life in perspective in a way, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, a little bit. How significant we are. <laughs> exactly. Um, what an extraordinary story. And uh, when you arrived, I, I imagined to great fanfare, um, oh, I guess everything like exploded. <laughs> and you were on the speaking circuit. And yeah, I guess I got quite a good story. I mean... You know, it was kind of, I raised a hundred thousand pounds for Kings, which was pretty cool. What well, everyone was very generous, obviously, and donated that amount. I hit all the newspapers and odds on the rain TV sofa. I'm on here today. Um, so yeah, it was, I was very lucky. I've got a good story, and it went to plan. It worked out, and and everyone else says, "Oh, you're extraordinary." I'm like, I think I'm just in the right place at the right time. I'm just 
lucky that I had a few tumours that put me on the, the what I call the right route to life. Well, I think um, you're extraordinary. Uh, I think they're right. I had a good boat and, I don't know, whatever, the, the stars aligned. Well, you're very humble about it. And uh, tell me about your latest venture, Kick Plastic. Kick Plastic is, uh, so I just cycled the entire coast of the UK, which is about 6,900 kilometres. And we did 78 beach cleans with 1,950 volunteers, and we cleared three, just under three and a half tonnes wow. of waste off the beaches. Wow, wow. We've got one to return to, because we didn't even touch the sides. We've got about 15 to 20 tonnes worth of fishing, fishing gears up in Scotland near uh, Ullapool. Right. Um, and there was only five of us, and it was quite a remote beach, and I didn't have four weeks to spend cleaning it up. So we got, we're going to go back and we're going to do a festival, like a beach clean... Beach clean festival. Yeah, yeah. a bag for a beer. So you collect a bag of crap and you get a beer in exchange is the plan. Gosh, that'll be interesting as the uh, collection wears on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, 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 and what's happening next? You've got a European um, one coming up, Yeah, right? so Kick Plastic Europe. So we're going to do London to Monaco via the entire West Coast. So mm -hmm. uh, Rotterdam through North France, West France, Spain, Portugal, Spain, France, Amazing. Monaco. So if somebody wants to uh, lean in and support in some way, how do they do that? And they can get in touch with me. Yes. Um, link below. Link below. I'm, I'm pointing down for those who are listening on podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, and it's all about, um, I'm a big believer in community and purpose, so for me, I'm being a little bit selfish because I, this is what I like to do, I like being outdoors and I like challenging myself. Yeah. I also feel good about doing things yeah. for the greater good, but uh, and with my like, living and giving values that I set myself, I don't want to just be a, like a, a taker, but as an, and also as a teacher and education and I'm passionate about the environment, I kind of just put all these things together and I just think community is so important in any like in any of these things. If you're just on your own trying to change the world, it's impossible, right? But yeah. if you can get other people to come and help. And it, and it was really obvious because when we had beach cleans with five people, we collected, you know, three to, most beaches would be three to five kilos. When we yeah. had a beach with ninety people, we collected ninety to one hundred and twenty kilos. So yeah. it is really obvious that one person genuinely makes a difference. Um, so if everybody was collecting a Kilo, yeah. then we then Lanza will be grateful. <laughs> but there needs to be somebody like you who uh, who mobilises. Um, what what an extraordinary story, and there's so much that we um, we haven't uh, spoken about. Um, you probably got you know some young students watching uh, or listening, uh, maybe others um, more in uh, my age group thinking about uh, this story. Having been through all of these experiences, what's your advice? You've got to live your life. I mean, I keep seeing it in people, and we've got a climate crisis. So, um, but also to give back, I think that's also important. Yeah. I find that the more, the less I think about myself, the more I think about others, the happier I become. Actually, so it's kind of like a, it's a nice thing. If you get too involved in your own head, yeah. then it can be quite a dangerous world. So actually, giving back, being a part of other people's things, supporting and all that stuff, but life is super short. So we've got to think about ourselves, our mental well-being, but also the well-being of the planet. We're all kind of linked in together. Well.
well, what what brilliant uh, in a rather sort of hippie tree hugging kind of the but Gaia like, philosophy. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. It's true. Well, extraordinary advice uh, for young and for old. Kiko Matthews, you're an inspiration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks. Thanks for having me.